Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we get a rare glimpse into the life of John F. Kennedy. There are so many books, articles, and films about the 35th president, but it's not often you get to hear about the man from the people who knew him, those who worked for him. And in this episode, we get to speak with Deirdre Henderson, who was hired by JFK as his research assistant as he ran for the presidency in 1959, and Senator Kennedy gave Deirdre his post-Second World War diary so she could learn more about his thinking. So from this, we get to learn about his wartime and post-war thoughts, his experiences at Potsdam, his perception of war and leadership, and of course, about his idol, Winston Churchill. But by talking to Deirdre, we get to learn, well about those questions you have to ask anyone who worked for JFK. What was he like to work for? What was it like the day they won the presidency in that close election over Nixon? And how did that fateful day play out in 1963 when JFK was tragically assassinated? This is a rare and fascinating episode. Hi, Deirdre. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us from the other side of the world, from Massachusetts, from Manchester by the sea, to talk about JFK. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, great. Well, let's talk about JFK, because there's so many books, articles, and films about the 35th president of the United States, but it really is not very often that we get to hear about the man from the people who knew him, those who worked for him. So how did you know JFK? I knew him first by when I was still in college, reading all about him. And then when I finally met him in 1952 at a lunch in the Capitol arranged by my brother-in-law, who knew him during World War II, I got a chance to meet him for the first time. Right. So you met JFK through your brother-in-law, who had served with him during the Second World War. He was on orders to join VT-28 on Guadalcanal by taking troop transport to Afate, I think that's the pronunciation for the island, an island south of Guadalcanal, about 100 miles. It was on this transport that I found Jack Kennedy, this is from Paul's memoirs, rooming next to me. We struck up a friendship, and he seemed to enjoy my box of private label JPM cigars, that's J.P. Morgan. One night we were on the boat deck, looking over the rail and smoking cigars against blackout orders. 
me go on here. Took note. When discussing the North American war front, Jack said, I'm going to the radio shack to hear the news. He came back 10 minutes later and said, your grandfather died today. And that was J.P. Morgan. This is from Paul Benoit's memoirs. And from this first encounter, you ended up then working for him. How did that happen? Well, I was on my way to the University of Edinburgh for my junior year abroad. And he was very pleasant. And first of all, he introduced me to all his staff in his Senate office. We met him in the Senate office. And he said, where's Paul? And my sister, Cecily, said, he's arguing before the Supreme Court. He actually didn't argue before the Supreme Court until years later, but she had him ahead of the time. And then he brought us to lunch, and we had fish chowder, a piece of toast, and a glass of milk. He had a very strict diet because of his health. And then he gave me a card to go up and watch a Senate hearing. So that's the first meeting. You know what, that's amazing, actually, because you remember down to that minute detail about what you ate on that day with JFK. So it must have been such an important moment for you. Well, it was. I was only a sophomore in college, so I wasn't very sophisticated. But I just remember that. And I remember he brought me across to meet Senator Green from, I believe, Rhode Island. And then he, he had to get back to work. And then it was later in 1958 that I met him again when he hired me. Right. I went to the graduate school, Kennedy School at Harvard, defense studies program for a couple of years. Then the appointment was arranged for me to meet with him. After Paul sent him the letter, he immediately called back for an interview, which I went to in 1958. Okay, so you first meet him in 1952, and then a few years later, after you've done your degree and you start working at Harvard, that's when you meet him again. I gave notice and said I was leaving to work for JFK. Ah. And so what was your first role with JFK? Well, I'd already begun sending him papers on conventional war, everything to do with defense policy that I knew about. And so he already had those papers from me. And the interview that he gave me was rather interesting. It wasn't just, you know, I'm going to hire this research assistant. He asked me if I could be a speechwriter. And I said, no, I'm not trained enough to be a speechwriter. I want to be a research assistant. So he said, well, you can come to Washington. I said, no, Senator, I'm really not ready to come to Washington. And then he immediately said, well, I'll put you in my Boston office and I'll put you in charge of my brain trust or my academic advisors. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. So there I was, a new job, and I was to be in his Boston office, which was manna from heaven. Yeah, amazing. What was his brain trust that you were put in charge of? Well, it was a group of Harvard-MIT professors, a couple of businessmen. But the order he gave me, he said, hire any other experts you need as you get the assignments. So that gave me free reign to call up, say, Professor Galbraith, whoever it was, and say, who shall I use for expert on ABC? Whatever it was, the assignment was, because it wasn't just foreign policy and defense that the brain trust was in charge of. It was myriad other subjects. Wow, that sounds like quite a responsibility for a young researcher who's moved over from Harvard to start working for JFK. Was he demanding? Was he difficult to work for in that environment? No. He wanted everything done very quickly. As Hugh Sidey said in his introduction to Prelude to Leadership, 
he was a serious man on a serious mission, and that he was. In fact, one night he uh, called me, I think it was about 11 o'clock at night. I was at home where I grew up in Essex, and he said, I want to talk to you about that research that you're doing on Khrushchev. I lucked out. I had brought it home, and then I read him the quotes that he wanted, and then that was a marvelous conversation because he went on, he talked to me about some of the academic advisors, who I thought was good and who I thought was, you know, it was a frank conversation. And I told him I thought that Archibald Cox of the law school was one of his best advisors and very loyal to him. And he said, I agree with you. He said, you have to put Sorensen first because he's a very good speechwriter. I said, I know. So we went on, we chatted, and he told me all kinds of things he wanted to know about various of his advisors. So I could say anything I wanted, and it was an interesting conversation. And he wasn't putting pressure on me. just wanted it when he wanted it. Yeah, it sounds like you were in quite an influential position. You had the, the ear of the future president. I wasn't influential, but I was allowed freedom. What were some of the projects that you worked on for JFK as he was running for president? Can you tell us? Well, one of the key ones was the defense situation with the defense policy of the United States at the present time. So I went to all the experts that we had and reached out to people like General Gavin and the Rand Corporation, Rostow, everybody and anybody. And I incorporated those in. And then I came back to my supervisor, who was Professor Cox. So Archibald Cox was the principal to the whole operation. And we incorporated them all into this paper. And then I sent it on when it was finished. But along with that, I was fulfilling other papers that he wanted right away. Nuclear arms, weapons, he had me call Sir Armstrong Gore on that, and various other papers. I mean, various. There were about 25 of them. I remember one of the key things about the Kennedy election victory over Nixon was that there was this myth propagated about a missile gap. This idea that the U.S. had less missiles than the Soviet Union and that they were vulnerable to attack in the event of nuclear war. Is that something that you were involved in at that time? Yes. And we incorporated it into this major paper that Archibald Cox and I sent to Washington. And it was strongly promoted. Later on, toward the end, we learned that Vice President Nixon couldn't say anything. He knew that we didn't have a missile gap. But he was hamstrung. So it did play itself in the press that we had a missile gap. And where did you get that information from? Can you tell us your sources? The sources were Loran Corporation. It was widely believed amongst the people who were Kennedy's advisors that we did have a missile gap. It was kind of accepted that we had it. Toward the end, the Rand Corporation, somebody sent me a note that said, well, actually, it turned out we didn't have a missile gap, but that was too late. It had already done its work of the campaign, if you know what I mean. It's one of the things that helped Kennedy win one of the closest election victories in U.S. history. Quite a fingerprint on history there, Deirdre. And the Rand Corporation's in California, isn't it? Did you have to travel across America and get all the intel for Kennedy? Oh, no, I just did it by phone until the time of the Democratic Convention. And remember, I wasn't a Democrat. JFK never asked me whether I was a Republican or a Democrat. He didn't care what you were. He just cared if you could produce the research that you were obliged to do. And in that role, he was very kind. I was never, never pushed on anything. I just did it as fast as I could. 
But you were able to travel from that point, were you? So after the convention, you were sent off across the United States? Right. And he said, yes. He asked me to do a party for his brain trust, his advisory group. And I did it at a house on Beacon Hill where I was staying when it was snowing. So I had a party and invited all the advisors, plus some politicians, a governor and an ex-governor and everybody. And I couldn't figure out why they were all coming. But they were coming because they had figured that this was the next president. And I got a bartender. I'd never given a cocktail party in my life. I asked my father for the best liquors, and I got them from the liquor store that was owned by the Kennedys. So it was a very festive time, and I stood by the senator the whole time. And then I said, Senator, what would you like to drink? And he said, ginger ale. I thought, why the devil did I go and buy all that liquor? Anyway, it lasted for quite a while because everyone was pressing in on him. And one of the ones who pressed in the greatest was Walt Rostow, who was a very nice gentleman, MIT. And he kept saying, Jack, Jack, i got to speak to you. And the senator kept sort of brushing him aside. And then finally, he accepted an envelope, stuck it in his top pocket. And it turned out to be Rostow recommending that he call his campaign the New Frontier, which indeed he did. So that was quite historic. So the birth of the New Frontier took place at your cocktail party. That's correct. And I'm not lying. I'm not lying. So then when the cocktail party, which seemed to last forever, was toward the end, I walked out the door with the senator and I said, Senator, can I ask you a favor? I said, I'm doing all this work on research on economics and foreign policy and defense and everything else. Could I come to the convention so I could learn something about politics? And it didn't take him a second to give me the answer, which was, yes, you can, if you spend half the time at the Rand Corporation and the other half with my top people at the convention. Boy, oh boy, I thought, that's awesome. So you got to go to the Democratic Convention and you got to travel off to California for the other half of the time. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. It was. I didn't even realize at the time what a deal it was. And he had it arranged that I sit with Catherine Graham, who was the owner of the Washington Post. He probably thought she might get into trouble, which I quickly did. And I sat with her. She was very gracious. She wasn't a big fan of JFK, as I could tell that. But we had polite conversations. Then after about a day and a half, I got bored and I said, Mrs. Graham, do you mind if I go down on the floor? And she said, that was fine. So I went down. Of course, I didn't have a pass. I wasn't a member of the Massachusetts delegation, but I ran into Chubb Peabody, who was the governor who had known me. And I said, oh, governor, I got to get a pass to get in. And he took the pass off himself and gave it to me. He said, don't bother, don't bother to give it back. So I was free reign. I was there. And I said hello to all my people that I knew in the Massachusetts delegation. And then I spotted in the corner that a whole bunch of young people like myself were rooting for Senator Scoop Jackson. So we all took signs and we were running around the convention hall. Then I thought, well, I wonder what's happening at the top. So I ran off and I found Robert Kennedy. And I said, oh, tell me, why not have for vice president Scoop Jackson? And he looked up with his very tired eyes and said, he didn't say Deidre because none of them could pronounce my name correctly. He said, Deidre, that decision has already been made last night. And then I knew we had Lyndon Johnson, and I had no love for Lyndon Johnson, let me tell you. So I went back and I told my buddies with their signs, but that was just what happened. And his father had told him he'd better choose Johnson or he wouldn't win. And so why didn't you have any love for LBJ? 
I'd heard too many bad stories about him. And Sorensen didn't want him either. Nobody wanted him. We didn't want him, but it was a necessity to win. Yeah, one of those political calculations that had to be made. Right. And so from this point on then, you're working towards Kennedy becoming president. And he does. What was it like on that night, that early morning, when you found out that all your hard work had paid off? Well, actually, we'd been to a rally and I was asked to go down to Hyannis and everything. But I said, no, no, I'm going home. But anyway, the next morning after the election, let me tell you, I wasn't sure that I had a job because it was so darn close, the election, razor thin. And I think that Mrs. Nixon wanted her husband to challenge it. And he did what I think was a very noble act, which was say, no, it's over. He and Jeff, they had respect for each other. They went to Congress on the same year. They were both very bright, but of course, JFK had the charisma and the ability to handle television. And speaking of JFK's charisma, did he change at all when he became president? Because I've spoken to a few people who worked for JFK, and they say he was a bit difficult to work with due to the sheer pace of his life, and he rarely stopped, and all the other factors that we know about JFK. But did he change as president, or was he still really good to work for? Same, I found. He was very thoughtful. One of the times I went in to see him, and he hadn't figured out that I'd been blackballed for the job I really wanted, which was a research assistant in the National Security Council. He didn't know that. I didn't know it. So I took a job in the White House, which was working for Sergeant Shriver, his brother-in-law, and the gentleman who was in charge of civil rights. And it was fine. It was civil rights, and it was the Peace Corps, but it got boring after a while. I had a White House pass. I felt like a messenger. So I asked Mrs. Lincoln to give me an appointment, and she did. It was early February, and that was the point he told me, Deidre, he couldn't say Deidre, remember, you're not at the top, you're not at the bottom, you're in the middle. So that put me in my place. And he said, I always wanted to make the State Department a place which was really important. I want you to go over and work for Roger Hillsman, who is the director of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. And I went right over upon orders from the president, not orders, but it was a suggestion. He first asked me if I wanted to go to India. He said, Professor Galbraith wants you to go to India. And I said, I'm not going to India with all those diseases, which is kind of rude. Anyway, I went to the State Department and that turned out to be a top-notch job where I learned a lot. I got a lot of responsibility. What sort of role did you play in the State Department then? I was his staff assistant. But he gave me interesting assignments, like, for example, I went to all the top meetings of his top staff. I was assigned to go to every meeting in the State Department of the people who briefed the press. And I would brief them about what Mr. Hilsman had told me I could say about what was going on in the intelligence community. That was a good assignment. And I was in charge of a small brain trust producing papers for him. I ended up going to important meetings and assignments that were really worthwhile. Amazing. You mentioned civil rights and you mentioned the Peace Corps. And of course, JFK has gone down in history as a man who helped stimulate the US economy. He established the Peace Corps. He contributed to the advancement of civil rights. And he also helped avoid nuclear Armageddon during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's safe to say he was a great leader, and a lot of the books and works really do state that. But where did he get his leadership credentials from, do you think? 
from his earlier travels and reading and getting to know foreign leaders well in advance of his becoming president. He wrote his diary, for example, in 1945, which was 16 years before he became president. He had insight into the geopolitical world, which few presidents have had before. Right. So you say we draw on his early life to learn lessons about how JFK became the leader that he did. Because JFK was an officer during the Second World War, wasn't he? Oh, yes. And he was on a PT boat and he was a hero on that boat. He saved his buddies. And he also learned about the world of war and he hated war. Husadi says this in his introduction to Prelude to Leadership, the European Diary of John F. Kennedy, he says, if I had to single out one element in Kennedy's life that more than anything else influenced his later leadership, it would be a horror of war, a total revulsion over the terrible toll that modern war had taken on individuals, nations, and societies, and the even worse prospects in the nuclear age. That's quite a statement. This is the handwritten first page of the diary. And I haven't had too many experts decipher it. I've done a lot myself on it. He says, two paragraphs, war is fatal to democracy if beaten. This war has been won. We won't lose our liberty at the hands of the enemy. But it is still a question whether we shall have it at our own terms. We have been gravely weakened by this war. Our values have been changed as never before. We have suffered the loss of nearly 800,000 young men, many of whom might become the leadership we will so desperately need. To meet the challenges of the post-war years, we must show far greater concern for the word there we can't read and our country than we have ever shown in the past. I suppose it's understandable to say that as well, because JFK didn't have an easy war. If you're commanding one of those PT boats in the Pacific, you are the captain of that boat, despite the fact that he was a lieutenant, I think. He is the commander of that boat. So you gain a lot of experience with that small crew and that decision-making process. And of course, then he's struck by a Japanese destroyer. The boat is split in half. And like you say, he becomes a war hero by saving his crew. I think one of his crew was injured and he grabbed their belt around his teeth and he swam whilst pulling them through the water for a few miles to get them to a small island. That's right. You know, he was really a hero and he didn't make a big deal about it. It was all written up after the war. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. But the other thing to take note of is his knowledge of the First World War. So his father, his father was an isolationist, which is well known. So he had a good feel for the tragedy of war and the toll that it took on human lives. That was a dreadful war. So he had that history and knowledge of the past. I suppose no one really thinks about that too much, but his father was the American ambassador to Britain. Somebody who wasn't too keen on the war starting in the first place. Is that right? Oh, yes. He worked with Chamberlain very closely. He had no love for Churchill. And that's why a book that I just read, The Churchill Factor, by the current Prime Minister of England, is so vital to know the situation during the first part of World War II, or during World War II. And of course, Ambassador Kennedy had been relieved of his duties as ambassador because of going to the press. So he was out. But during the time that JFK was at Harvard, he got to work for his father in the embassy, and he got to travel all over the world for assignments. JFK's father gave him great license to do what he thought was the best. He was not hamstrung by his father. Right. So JFK wasn't just a man of war in the sense that he was literally a soldier, but he also learned about the politics of war as well and how to be a leader. That's right. And he agreed with Churchill, peace through strength. He really admired Churchill, didn't he? He certainly did. JFK was an Anglophile, and he liked going around with his sister Catherine. And his coverage of Churchill's re-election campaign, we should be able to find some photographs of that. I haven't yet been able to, but he traveled up and down England and covered that for the Hearst newspapers, which he was working for at the time. And he predicted that Churchill was going to lose. Churchill kind of thought he was going to lose, too, because people just wanted to get a better life. They had been through tragedy, and they wanted to see more welfare, which was understandable. On April 9th, 1963, he awarded Sir Winston Churchill to be an honorary citizen of the United States. That was a very important time for JFK, because he idolized him. When he was a young boy, he had read Churchill. He was a very sick man, a lot of his younger years, JFK, and right on into his being president. He wasn't well. He moved along like FDR. He didn't show that he was in crisis, but he had a very bad back. I think his honorary award of citizenship is summed up by what JFK said on April 9th, 1963. He gave a talk, and Sir Winston was in London with Clementine, because he wasn't well enough to travel to the White House. But his son gave his acceptance of the honorary citizenship. But I'd like to read one paragraph from what he said on that day, because I think it really brings home the two of them and and what they shared. The president says, whenever and wherever tyranny threatened, he has always championed liberty, facing firmly toward the future. He has never forgotten the past. 
serving six monarchs in his native Great Britain. He has served all men's freedom and dignity. In the dark days and darker nights when England stood alone, and most men, save Englishmen, despaired of England's life, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. The incandescent quality of his words illuminated the courage of his countrymen. I think that those words are unbelievably worth listening to. Wow, they're almost Churchillian in their own sense, aren't they? And it really shows JFK's respect and admiration for Winston Churchill. He was his idol. And when he got to meet him aboard Aristotle's yacht, Churchill was unfortunately a little too old to appreciate who he was meeting. And of course, the way that we know about how JFK was feeling in 1945 and what he was doing is by this remarkable revelation that his only diary that he ever kept, written in his own hand, was written during this year of 1945, after the war, a year of seismic change as the world transitioned into a nuclear world and a Cold War world, perhaps even. But it's through this diary that we get a glimpse into his thinking as a young man, someone who's now a veteran, but someone also who has political ambitions. And he gave this diary to you, didn't he? Yes, he did. And I have kept it through thick and thin, I can say, because it was given to me, and had he not been assassinated, he would have written his own diary. But I was fortunate in that I had it to keep for history. And Thurston Clark claims rightfully so that it was the only diary that JFK ever wrote. That is amazing. It is such an important part of history. Why did he give it to you? He wanted me to know everything about how he thought about policy issues. So it was practical for him. Remember, he's working at top speed. He was a serious man on a serious mission. He did what was necessary. And fortunately, he trusted me to have it. And after that, we went forward. We were working at top speed. Everybody was working at top speed because they admired him and they liked him. Now, where is JFK when he's writing this diary? He's all over Europe. He, his father got him a job with the Hearst newspapers. His father was, was the ambassador to Britain because Roosevelt wanted to get, get him out of the country because he was afraid he was going to run for president, which he wanted to, Ambassador Kennedy. So JFK is given the Hearst newspaper job, and his first assignment was to go to the opening of the United Nations in San Francisco in May of 1945. And he was meeting important people there, leaders in the world stage, and he followed it very carefully. He was writing for Hearst newspapers, and he would file reports. And he didn't think that the United Nations was going to be very successful, and he was in part right. And then he went on from San Francisco. He went straight over to Europe and he went to Ireland, England, France. Most of the diary is about Germany. He was traveling with the secretary of the Navy, who also knew his father, James Forrestal, who later became the first secretary of defense. Forrestal met JFK in Paris and they went from Paris to Germany and if you can imagine, traveling with the Secretary of the Navy gives you access, right? Uh, in Forrestal's diary, he doesn't mention JFK, but JFK mentions Forrestal in his diary. And I checked through. They talk about the same things in their diary at the same places they went to. So that's all been verified. 
So what did you learn from this diary? It was given to you to learn about the man that he was, the leader that he was, and perhaps the policies he wanted to put forward. What was it that you learnt from his post-war journey? Well, one thing that stands out to me is his knowledge of history. He really understood the past. For example, he was at Potsdam with Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal. He traveled with him. And JFK was there to observe two presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, and then, of course, he was there. It's amazing to think there were three present and future presidents at Potsdam. Amazing that he saw all that and observed them all at work. And Churchill, having lost the campaign, had to leave Potsdam and go back to England. And also that he remarked about his visit to Germany, seeing post-war Germany through the ruins of Berlin, going to Hitler's Brennenhaven with Forrestal. He was an observer of all the post-war countries. He spent the bulk of his time in the diary on Germany. And he saw the coming of the Cold War. He was talking about the dangers of the Russians being one of the keepers of the post-war period. And of course, he saw the damage that could be caused by unrestricted aerial warfare as well. Just what conventional bombs could do to some of the major cities of Europe. And I'm sure that must have played in his mind when he was deliberating about those tense moments of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, yes. As a contributor to this next book, says if it hadn't been for JFK, we might have been in a thermonuclear war with the Russians. But he prevailed. He dominated. He didn't listen to any of his top advisors on it. He just said, this is the way it's going to be. And General Curtis LeMay wanted to bomb Cuba. And so President Kennedy made a deal with Khrushchev that there wouldn't be any bombing. So he was very, very much ahead of his time on Cuba. It is interesting to think that JFK was there walking through the rubbled streets of a post-war Europe. Does he write in the diary about his thoughts on seeing this and how it affected him? Oh, yes, he does. He makes very down-to-earth statements about the ruins and the rubble and the plight of the German people. He was very concerned how they would face the winter that was upcoming and there would be starvation and plight. And he really felt for the people, and he went there with Ambassador Harriman and Forrestal walking through the ruins of Berlin. And then as they flew on to some of the sites in Bremen, Bremenhaven, he noted the difference between the countryside and the people were healthy, and the people in Berlin were devastated. Hunger, everything. But he did foresee the Russian threat. I think that it would be hard not to see the ambition of a rising and robust Soviet Union at this point, especially if you're witnessing the discussions at Potsdam. What does JFK make of Stalin? Well, he doesn't directly comment on Stalin in the diary, but he does comment on the communist threat to the unification of Germany. That's interesting, isn't it? Because JFK has gone down in history as a friend of the German people, of German reunification. And this diary seems to reveal a unique look into his inner thoughts almost two decades before his famous address. Right. And Hugh Sadi was there with him and he says he'd never experienced such a wonderful trip that he made there. And the German people just adored him. And he liked the German people. I mean, he separated Hitler from them. He saw that Hitler was a tyrant and a crazy man. He had met a lot of leaders before he became president. He had met foreign leaders all over the world. And 
after they got to know him, they had great respect for him. And I know that a few commentators have made some comments about JFK's views on Hitler. Comments like Hitler was the stuff of which legends are made, or that you can easily understand within a few years how Hitler will emerge from the hatred that surrounds him now as one of the most significant figures who ever lived. Some say this shows sympathies for him. Do you think this is the case or, you know, are we completely wrong here? Well, first of all, remember, his father was totally against the war and he was trying to prevent Britain from going to war. And he wanted us to make a deal with Hitler. So some of that rubbed off on JFK, but not totally. And I think his final statement there, that Hitler was the stuff of which legends are made. Well, I think he was the stuff of which, he was an evil stuff of which legends are made. Hitler just just died a couple of months ago before JFK got there. This is all fresh. He isn't looking back at history. He's right there. So it it makes a big difference. It really is an amazing story. Because this diary that you have and you were given by JFK shows us just how important that post-war period was as a part of his formative years and shaping his decision-making, but also how important the experience of war, of that total war period of world wars, was on shaping the man who he became, a man who was taken so tragically young as well. What was it like on that day when you found out that tragic news? I was in D.C. I was having lunch in the State Department with a Foreign Service officer, and he took me to the little restaurant that used to exist outside the State Department. I'm sure it's no longer there, but it was a place we'd go to lunch if we wanted a quick lunch. Anyway, we were coming out of the restaurant, and the radio was on, and it said, the president has been shot. So I said to this young man, let's run back to the State Department because I know that he isn't, I, I know that he isn't dead. And my boss, which is Roger Hillsman, will, will know. So I went back and the secretary told me to go right in. Mr. Hillsman was waiting for me. And I went in and his tears were just streaming down his face. And that was when I knew we'd lost our president. And it was absolutely devastating. And, and about two or three weeks before the assassination, there was a gentleman, I believe his name was Jeff Greenfield. He was deputy secretary of the Department of Public Affairs at the State Department. And sometimes Mr. Greenfield would bang on my door in Georgetown and say, are you ready to go? Because I had a car and I also had a parking space in the garage at the State Department. And then I'd either say I was ready or not ready. But this day, he got into the car and he said, Deirdre, I'm going to the White House along with about nine other people. We're going to brief the president on his trip to Dallas. And there are strong rumors that he's going to be assassinated. Here I was at GS-15, and I knew about these rumors ahead of time. We talked about the attempted assassination all the way to the state. And when he got out of the car, I said, Mr. Greenfield, please say hello to the president and tell him not to go to Dallas. But of course, he did go to Dallas, and now one of the only ways in which we can hear the voice of a young JFK anyway is through this diary that he gave to you. Where can people read this diary, Deirdre? Well, the book that came out in 1995, Prelude to Leadership, The European Diary of John F. Kennedy, Summer 1945, Introduction by Hugh Sidey, has the whole diary in it with my notes. That is still in publication by Regnery. And in 
2013, it was chosen as the best book on JFK by the Wall Street Journal. Oh, fantastic. So people can still get hold of this book. It's available on Amazon or all good booksellers so they can read the words of JFK himself and make their own decision of just how much this period influenced the man he became. That's correct. Do you have any plans for a second edition of this book? Yes. Just about completed is a book which I've already copyrighted with the name John F. Kennedy's 1945 Insights for Our Time. And I've got seven contributors, historians, three of us knew the president and worked for him. Amazing. So we get to hear from JFK himself, but also those who knew him most clearly and most closely. I love the title, Insights for Our Time, because he really is writing about a period just after a crisis, an international crisis. And although that's war, I, I really think that there should be things that we can take from this diary that will help us to understand and perhaps approach the current international crisis that we live in. I think so. And the fact that he thought for himself, he was free thinking about the world and how the world should be shaped. So some of these people who write about him, and particularly one of them that writes about Cuba, show that he was a man unto himself. And I have a long quote from President Reagan, who had great admiration for JFK. And President Reagan says he was a man unto himself. They had similarities. So I think people will enjoy the book. And Mr. Society's introduction is very valuable, and Mr. Society is no longer with us. That's what you've got to learn. You've got to learn history from the past. This prelude to leadership gives you an opportunity to do that. Deirdre, thank you so much. I can't wait to read the second edition, Insights for Our Time. Thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome, and thank you for interviewing me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.